One of the great liabilities of history is that all too many people fail to remain awake through great periods of social change. Every society has its protectors of status quo and its fraternities of the indifferent who are notorious for sleeping through revolutions. Today, our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. first said those words over 50 years ago, and they continue to ring true today. If we do not remain vigilant, if we do not adjust to new ideas, what are we really doing? On today's episode, we're going to talk about inclusive activism and advocacy. Activism and advocacy are not the same thing, but they are closely related and both are very necessary to create change in our society. Activism is just what it sounds like. It is taking action to solve social and political issues. It means being at the forefront of movements. And it means using energy to create change. Advocacy means speaking and learning about social and political issues and bringing about change by raising awareness of places where people are marginalized or issues where folks are impacted more harshly or more gravely than others. So while sometimes we will use activist and advocate interchangeably, they're not quite the same thing. Their functions are both meant to bring about change and both impact people in great ways. They're kind of cousins, if you will. And I'm happy that on this episode, I'm able to welcome some great advocates and activists that I happen to know who are regularly doing work in our communities to bring about change for people that they care for, that they look out for, and even probably sometimes for people that they've never met. So buckle up and get ready for a great conversation with some exciting folks who are going to share their activism and advocacy journeys with us. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Inscribing Inclusion. I am excited today because I have guests. This is a fun thing to do, but it is always better to do with others. And so I am thrilled uh, to welcome some folks who live in the community where I live, who work in the community where I live, and who are all around what I consider good people. I have met these folks at um, various points and junctures in my life two of them well into my adulthood and relatively in the past couple of years. I am grateful uh, that they are able to join me today because these are the type of folks that because of what they do, their schedules stay packed 
And so when they are available, it is a wonderful thing. Um, so without further ado, I'm gonna have them do some self introductions, but I am going to just kind of say that it's always good to talk to strangers, at least in my world, because it leads to good connections with folks and wonderful opportunities. So with that being said, I will allow you, and we're gonna do this in alphabetical order as we currently sit on this call. I will allow you to self-introduce and tell us why you're here, starting with Karen. Hello. Um, oh, you just gave Karen. I'm going to give some context to that. So um, <laughs> my name is Karen Hewitt. Um, I use he, here and she, her pronouns. Uh, also known as Karen Marie in the community as an artist and creative. I do a lot of things. So I am really excited to be here today. I grew up and um, started my career as a college basketball coach. And so moving from that into HR and educational policy and leadership, my grave secret that's coming out recently is that I was a math major undergrad. So um, in education and elementary and special and secondary education. So I have a master's in educational policy and leadership. And that's where I really started to work with people in the HR space and um, strategic human capital, workforce development, that kind of thing, and realized it was a lot like coaching uh, folks. And so that felt really familiar and I wound up loving it and got to work in HR. And then that wound up bringing me to the activism and organizing that I've been doing uh, for some years in Columbus. As I went to the Ohio State, I got to get into activism circles and I actually met Molly through that space, um, working with Summit United Methodist um, Summit on 16th, and we got to do a lot of things. My first invitation into that space was through a drag show at a church, and that really kind of uh, turned my head a little bit. So I was able to to look at the um, the the drag space in a in a biblical and religious sense, and so that kind of changed my my theology, and that's really where I started working towards queer theology in politics and everything leadership that I'm doing. And I got the opportunity for the last three years to work with Kaleidoscope Youth Center. And so in those three years, I've also done facilitation on diversity management, anti-racism, uh, transformative justice, and um, really connecting through diversity. And what does that look like to have those conversations? I'm not your typical diversity, equity, and inclusion facilitator. We're talking about uh, feelings and um, getting close enough to the injustice that people can really uh, work through all of our racist ideologies that we're socialized into. And then um, I started the Rest Collective last year um, with my partner, and that is restorative equity through sustainable transformation. And what that does is on my individual time uh, is really connects people with their regulation of their nervous system so that we can function. And it's something that we don't often do. Um, and we're all just running around high on cortisol. <laughs> and uh, so the goal of the Rest Collective is through whatever, you know, some youth programs I'm working with. I've worked with um, a college team in their athletic department um, and just really talking through what that means to really be in a regulated space, to be in a self-accountable space, to be in a self-reflection place. And sometimes that works with youth, sometimes that works with adults, sometimes that works with community organizations, sometimes that works with corporate organizations. So it has a lot of um, 
legs, I guess I could say, but that is the work that I'm excited to do. I'm always going to be doing a lot, poet, writer, all of that thing, improv comedy, improv poetry. So I'm into a lot of things. Um, and it definitely, I need all of those things to really, really serve uh, my heart. My heart's always full. I'll say that. So that's a lot and a little about me. That is dope. Thank you, Karen. Now we're going to jump to Molly. Tell us who you are, Molly, while you're here. Thanks, Jocelyn. Um, and thanks, Karen, for going first. I learned some things about you. Did not know you were a math major. Um, so I'm Molly Shack. I uh, currently serve as one of the co-executive directors of the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, which is a statewide community organizing organization that works on uh, racial justice issues, economic justice issues, social justice issues through community organizing, strategic communications, and large-scale voter engagement and civic engagement work. Um, and I grew up in Columbus. I grew up on the east side of Columbus, an interesting part of town uh, over on East Fifth. My parents still live there. And um, you know, it was right outside of Bexley. And I was a Columbus public school student, uh, K through 12, went to public schools, and I would come home after school, ride my bike across the tracks into Bexley and got to see uh, what things look like on both sides of the tracks from a very young age and spent my life kind of experiencing um, the, the wide range of um, experiences that you get from being in communities that are diverse and uh, you know, racially, socioeconomically, uh, ethnically, and um, got involved while I was a student at Ohio State in sort of my early days, I guess, of activism, um, started getting involved. Really, I worked full-time in school and I wasn't really plugged in much. And I kind of kept to myself at Ohio State because the campus was very different than the Columbus that I was used to, that I grew up in. And it wasn't until my senior year that some kids that I went to Columbus Public Schools with got me involved in activism. And they were talking about the cost of higher education and um, you know, student loan debt and you know, the state of the economy and what was going on in communities. And, you know, that um, led into what became, I think, the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it wasn't sort of a hashtag yet, but it was about Trayvon Martin and uh, Ice-T and Skittles. And um, there was this youth movement and student movement that we got connected to through some of our national partners that helped me see a broader world of organizing and activism and what was possible um, both as a volunteer and then, you know, eventually as a staff community organizer, um, that there was a whole world out there of people. And I always kind of assumed that I needed to get out of Columbus in order to go change the world um, and change my, my world. Um, and it was through those years and through that work that I realized that there was something I could do in my own community and that, you know, Ohio in particular and Columbus was kind of one of the most important places. It is the heart of this country. You know, what happens here impacts the rest of the country politically. I think we are very much at the crossroads of both progressive, multiracial democracy uh, and people fighting for a better future and extreme uh, white supremacy and sort of fascism that is emerging. I think both things exist uh, very close to 270 uh, right here uh, inside, of our, inside of our community. And so, I didn't really know what um, it was gonna be like. I kind of took a leap of faith and um, through being connected at the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, I got to be exposed to a wide range of people who have been doing this work forever in communities 
faith-based organizations, community organizations, student organizations. Uh, and I never looked back. Um, I have been sort of now working in and around this community and this organization for about 10 years. I've had pretty much every job. Um, and I just love the sort of transformation that's possible in communities and really in, in people who um, start to see themselves as agents of change uh, and what's possible when you find your voice and you find it with others. Even if we can't fix everything that's happening, you know, there are um, transformations possible in ourselves that we can accomplish just by being in community and fighting. Um, and so that's kind of uh, what brought me into organizing and activism and just realizing that, you know, what I experienced growing up on both sides of the tracks, like we could all have nice things and, uh, you know, it shouldn't just be on one side or the other, but that there are decisions and policies and people who keep that the case every single day and that there's something we can do about it. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with some of the people on this call with Jasmine and Karen and others trying to figure out how to make trouble or good trouble. Uh, as uh, the late John Lewis calls it, and um, do what we can to improve our community. Awesome, thank you. Jasmine, it's your turn. In true activist and advocate fashion though, right? I said we were going in alphabetical order, but Jasmine had to slide in because, you know, she's running for the life blessing. But Jasmine, <laughs> tell us who you are and why you're here. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Jasmine Ayers. I was born and raised on the north side of Columbus, the best side, and <laughs> I graduated from Northland High School in 2008. Um, but I come from a long line of educators, and so community and family and being thoughtful about um, sort of how you move and how you, what legacy you're gonna leave behind is sort of always something that that I was raised with, um, but I left, I went down to North Carolina, went to Wake Forest for undergrad where I studied history, came home. I worked on the Obama campaign in 2012 as a field organizer, actually on the East side. So I, it does have a special place in my heart. Um, and that really, um, we had had a Trayvon Martin rally at, at school and then came home and that, that Obama campaign community organizing model really lit a spark in me, right? Like where you can really, I'm still friends with some of these people. Like these folks, they pray for me, they feed me, they come to my birthday parties, right? I know their kids, I know their grandkids. Um, and to see what people power really does, what it means when you talk about your values and you talk about um, real tangible things and you connect it to people's lives. It wasn't this abstract, like, big presidential thing. It was like, this is what happens in your community. Look at your neighbors. These are the people you want to take care of. Um, and so I spent some time doing that. Uh, and then I substitute taught for a little bit. So I spent some time in the classroom and then realized that our young people have so many problems before they even hit the door that I wanted to go back to school. So I went down to the University of Texas and got my master's in public policy, sort of fo focusing on education and local government came back. I was 25 with no job experience and a master's degree, so no one would hire me. Um, but luckily, my friend Stuart that I went to middle school with was organizing with Molly Shack and the Ohio Organizing Collaborative. And I put some volunteer work in. And in 2016, they hired me to run their voter registration program inside of 270. 
So in mostly minority, mostly hard to reach communities, we registered about 17,000 people to vote uh, in the span of about seven months. Uh, it was amazing. We hired people from the community to knock on the doors in the community. And we talked about local issues, right? That judge that gave your brother five years for a little bag of weed, you can vote him out. Um, and so I really, really enjoyed that. Um, got a lot more involved in local government and politics. And I thought I knew I wanted to run for office. I thought I would be 40 with kids. Um, but sometimes something just calls you and you have to listen to it. Um, and there was just a series of incidents in Columbus where the young people weren't getting what they needed and weren't getting the proper responses. Um, and, you know, I can adults, whatever, but when you start treating our babies wrong, um, I, I just can't, I can't deal with that. So in 2017, I decided to run for city council with uh, the Yes We Can crew, um, an amazing, amazing group of folks. Uh, I think a little over 31,000 people voted for me, which was extremely humbling. Um, and also, I guess just to sort of back up a little bit, as I was organizing, I was working with a lot of faith organizers. And then I was meeting people like Ms. Hood. And I grew up in the church, but God and I, we had a little bit of a, a break. <laughs> um, but this work renewed my faith in, in God and the work that we do and the principles um, that I wanted to live my life by. And so ended up sort of after the campaign, coming back to work for my church, um, they restarted their community development corporation. So I learned about land contracts. I learned about housing. I learned about real estate development. I learned about how to run a large scale event for 500 to 1,000 people. Um, and that is a lot of sort of my organizing efforts have been around sort of the faith-based community working particularly in Linden. Uh, and I now work for a company called Cohere of Cincinnati that's expanded to Columbus. And we do, um, it's community engagement meets strategic communications meets like typical consulting. Uh, but it's a really unique model. Um, I, I love it. So that's what I'm up to these days. And um, yeah, thanks for having us. So I am excited. Um, we've talked about, you all have talked a little bit about your introduction as to how you got into advocacy and activism and organizing. And I made a point um, in the intro to this show that when it's all edited, edited together, that activism and advocacy are not necessarily the same, but they are certainly cousins, right? And you all have touched a little bit on your why. And what I hear is one, you got interested in it because your exposure to something or someone you saw a need and realized that you had a skill set or a passion to fulfill that need, to fill that gap. And there's a lot of relationship that you all talk about both with each other, those of you in this Zoom room, if you will, and relationships with other folks, be it school friends and church folks and just that sort of thing. So that's wonderful. Taking what you've told us so far about who you are and how you show up in community. Imagine if you will, and it probably won't be too hard for you all to imagine because it, it probably is a conversation you have more often than not. Imagine if you will, there's a young person, high school age, maybe college, who wants to get involved, or there's an older person who's maybe in their 30s as uh, Karen referred to those geriatric millennials, right? Somebody in their 30s who's like, you know, I've kind of just been floating through life and I feel like maybe 
there's something else that I can be doing, um, even if they don't do it full time. You know, it's not their job necessarily, but maybe it's something they still want to dedicate some of their free time to. How does someone like what's the first thing they should do if they're considering any of this organizing activism or advocacy work? And whoever wants to take it first. I can um, take that one. So I think a lot of our entry, it's like from my understanding is someone grabbed our hand and said, come with me. And so sometimes it's sometimes it's the first step is being open to being asked something. Um, I mean, there's of course, right, like you can Google the things that you're interested in and find the places to volunteer and right, like I, you should do all of those things. Um, but I think really being open that when someone makes that ask, that you don't think about all the things that you have to do and you don't think about how cumbersome it is, but you actually just say, yes, show me. Um, and it's our job to grab people's hands and show them and pull them along. The first meeting I went to with the Ohio Student Association, they said, we wanna do this. They pulled out a whiteboard. They wrote the date that they wanted to do it. They assigned roles. And then they did it. And I had never been to something where people just did it. Like they just did what they said they were gonna do and then they organized around it. And so I thought I was gonna have to do all this work and there was gonna be all these meetings and it was gonna be this huge commitment. And it was like, no, Jasmine, you do these two things. You show up, you bring a few people, cool. And I was like, wow, that was nice. So sometimes uh, it seems overwhelming to have to get involved in a process, but if you just say yes, and you have good people with you, it won't be a burden and they'll show you the ropes. I love that. I'm gonna um, take it back where like the first thought I would be like, um, so yes, everything Jasmine just said. And my first thought would be like, check your why, right? So if you're looking around right now and it seems like the thing to do, or it seems like that's the right, the way, way to go or whatever, I would say, check your why. If you're coming in there from a place where you're like, you know, I want to just help people or I want to uh, do the thing and it doesn't have any personal connection to you, check that. You know what I mean? And so it, it, it has to mean something to you and it has to be about relationships. So then I would say get in relationship with the people that you're trying to support. It's hard to serve a community that you don't know anything about and that you don't have personal connection to or care about. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm an artist, you know, so I, I write and I perform and there was a couple years where I'm, I'm originally from Cincinnati and I was in Pennsylvania for a while and Lexington and all these places. And I came back and it was the connections of friends that were like, come to this event or come to do this thing. And, and just really being a participant and being engaged in those events and community events that weren't just, you know, the protests, like it, it leads you to that because you're building relationships. Um, and that I'm going to always, I'm going to probably go to my grave talking about relationship and how important that is. And to really check your why about why you're wanting to get involved, because if it's something where, um, you know, you're, you're trying to do it to look good, or we call it, you know, virtue signaling. Um, if you're doing it for that purpose, then it's like, you can really just donate to different causes and, and make a night of it. Um, but if it, if it's really about being in relationship and being in community and building the community that you want to see, um, that looks like all of us where everyone is seen, then that means getting in relationship with the community that you want to be a part of and, and help build and help support. Yeah, and maybe I can um, speak to 
kind of a different perspective as well. I certainly agree with everything Karen and, and Jasmine have said. Um, I think one thing is like, don't assume that people aren't already doing the work. Um, like, I, I think the first step is to show up and kind of listen and learn and meet people. As Karen was saying, like being in relationship, figuring out who has been leading in the work that you're trying to plug into um, is always the first step and showing up to listen and support and try to understand what's, what's going on and be a help and uh, not, you know, think that, okay, day one, I have a passion. I need to start something from scratch. I need to, I need to build a website and launch the thing. It's, you know, there, there are likely ways you can take small action to learn, to see what's out there. And then I think it's true there. Sometimes the things you want to see in the world don't exist yet. And being in relationship with people who are, are involved are, are always a step towards that. You know, we've heard, you know, Karen talk about a, a new collective that uh, they launched with other uh, folks who've been doing this work, right? There's, there is room for new things and growth, but I think your first step needs to be what's shaking. And then I'll say to, to white people in particular um, who are trying to figure out how to be involved in racial justice, because I think there are a lot of new people who maybe marched for their first time this past summer or took a digital action for the first time this summer or donated for the first time this summer. Um, you know, that, that is great. And there is so much more work to do beyond that season. And so, you know, I'll say for white people who are stepping into the work for the first time and trying to be intentional about being involved in racial justice, I would say the first thing to do is to, to stay in the room and to show up and not to run if something starts to feel uncomfortable um, because more likely than not, it's not about you. And just being able to sit back and, and rest in the fact that you're here to help, to plug in, to be, you know, as Karen said, checking in with why, why do I, what's my stake in racial justice? Why do I actually have a stake in the fact that our communities have been very strategically divided and conquered because many people would prefer to choose racism than to prefer to choose a path together where we can all prosper, even though that's the path to, to restoring so many problems in our community. So I think being able to um, uncenter yourself and whatever your thing is, uh, in a, if you're in a fight for racial justice, it, it literally is, is about supporting and centering the folks who, whose lives, whose experiences, whose spirits, bodies, hearts, and minds are on the line. And so just being able to be okay with that and, and um, show up in the room and be open to being wrong sometimes, because you're going to get some things wrong. Sometimes I've been wrong, I've been checked, and you got to just learn from it. But what happens when you get checked, or you learn, or you feel like you make a mistake, and then you run away, that actually shows people kind of what you're about, who you are, and, and what, what you're going to be down for when, when the time comes. And so just being able to stay in the room when it's hard and messy and challenging, I think is one of the most important parts. And I just, so, sort of to Karen's point about community, getting to know a community doesn't mean showing up to work at its food pantry, right? Like, and you don't need permission from black people to hang out in black neighborhoods, right? Like go eat the local cuisine, stop by the corner store and buy your water and Gatorade for the week, right? Like go to go, instead of working out at your gym in the suburbs, uh, go buy a pass at the rec centers. A $5 a month will get you into like every single rec center around the city of Columbus. So it is 
getting to know people isn't just about serving people who are in poverty because the communities are way more diverse than that. There are small business owners, there are entrepreneurs, there are teachers, there are lawyers, there are lawyers and doctors that live in Linden. Um, Jossie. <laughs> so, um, you know, just come hang out like hang out there's there doesn't you don't need permission you don't need to put a name tag on you know tell anybody while you're there just come eat and hang out and spend time with each other so these are all dope points and i'll, I'll kind of reiterate for the audience we heard to be open we heard uh that relationships are important and that you need to check your why we heard that when you are in a place and you are trying to be helpful, it is not time for you to be the superstar in the center of attention, but rather just stick around and stick to it. And also go to places when you're not just trying to show that you're doing something, right? Um, Jasmine makes a very good point. It's something that I call cultural curiosity. And so as a cisgender heterosexual black woman, most places I show up, I'm also an attorney, all these things. So most places I show up, it's just, I'm there. Most people don't even notice me. Um, sometimes I am noticed though, because for folks who know me, my hair is big. My personality is big, whether I open my mouth or not, it's just a thing. Um, but Jasmine wrote, talks about something where she says, you don't have to put on a name tag and make a deal, a big deal about the fact that you're there, just go. And Molly says, stay in the room. And Karen said, when your friends take you to stuff, just go and hang out. And maybe it's not a march, but maybe there is something that you're still doing that show you that you are engaged in the community. And on a previous episode uh, where I kind of covered the history of pride, I shared my first time going to a pride parade. Nobody asked me to put on a name tag. Um, I was walking, it was, a, it was a thing for work at the time, but I went anyway and I didn't go expecting anything except that I was gonna have to walk a long time. Um, <laughs> and then I needed to make sure that I was hydrated. But beyond that, that was it. Like, and I was just there and I had a good time because even though I do not enjoy parades, um, I had a good time because I was talking to people. I saw some people that I knew. Um, the weather was good. I was on the front end of the parade, so I didn't have to walk for too long. Uh, but again, I didn't. I didn't show up and was like, "Hey, I'm the straight girl. Come to the pride parade. I wanted. I want to. You know, a button for no, no. I'm here. <laughs> I'm waving it, folks. It's a thing. So whatever you do, be it if you're going to the pride parade or be it if you're going into what we call an inner city neighborhood to grab dinner or whatever, don't make a big deal. Just go. And the more you go, you become you become a part of that community. And since we all live in the same city, we should be able to vibe and flow in any neighborhood, any eatery, any event, and it not be a big deal because we're just going to hang out. And your your cultural curiosity will lead you because you'll learn stuff just by watching people, just by talking to people. You will get an understanding of somebody else's experience that will then broaden your lens and broaden your ability to try to understand. You will never fully understand somebody's individual walk in this life but it will give you a better perspective, I think. And so I'm glad you all you all shared that. So while we're talking about how to get involved and you all have come to this space differently, what that leads us to understand is that there is not a recipe necessarily for how you do this thing, right? There is no like checklist of like, show up, do this thing, wear this thing, do that. There is no recipe. And I often say, you just heard me say, I don't particularly care for a parade, so I'm probably not going to the march either but I am the person who will certainly hit the cash app. I'm gonna to donate to a bail fund, right? I will pass out snacks because I have done that at various places, um, passing out snacks, that's my, that's my jam. Uh, I will help raise awareness. That's the thing that I like to do because I get to be in rooms sometimes with folks that are far removed from what's happening 
on the ground in grassroots spaces. So I like to mention things sometimes and say, did you know? Or if I hear something that's, well, what, what makes you think that? Did you, how did you get to that conclusion? So I, I try to educate people um, because I'm so shy and quiet that I never talk. But there's sometimes a, and I think this is from people who are new to this space. I don't think it's from folks who are like tried and true, but doing the work or have a certain passion. But there is sometimes what I will call a, a shaming, if you will, of if you're not protesting or if you're not doing things in a certain way, there's a shaming to say that you're not true to the work or you're not committed to the cause. And I've never heard any of you do that. So this is why I'm asking this question. How do we allow people to click in and be helpful in the ways that they can be most helpful and not make a mess? and combat folks who are shaming them for not doing it in a certain way. I'll start there. Um, I, yeah, I'm not a big fan of shaming really of any kind because it, it's kind of counterproductive to the whole goal of like more together. Um, but like, if we, if, we, if we think about it, like I think it's easy, especially in the world of social media and when we all had a lot of time alone uh, and to think and to make up scenarios and maybe some narratives that weren't accurate. But I think um, it's it's a dangerous place to get in where we are judging others um, and we are judging others for their participation or lack thereof or what is said. When truly we're actually saying, if you are involved, don't you know share it all the time. It's not a photo op, all of that stuff. And then it's like, oh, well, what have you done? You know, and then it's like, I, I have to kind of share all that I've done. And it, so it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And I, I don't, um, I don't engage as much with, with that, especially social media or really in my life, I'm trying to make sure I'm in generative spaces. Right. So if it's like life-giving, then I'm going to have the conversation about it. Um, but I will always say like abolition wasn't, you know, just the underground railroad. And I mean, God bless the people that are on foot and that are doing that work. And um, sometimes I'm in a space to go and sometimes I am behind the scenes and making sure people get out safe or you know, uh, connecting people with resources or connecting people with safe places or um, different you know, packs or, or whatever. And sometimes I'm speaking at it, right? Like it, it could be all of those things. And, and I think there's a lot of uh, privilege in my opinion for me to be able to do all of those things and have access to all of those things and be able to also look at myself and be like okay where am I at right now and where am I best needed and what what role will I feel that makes the most sense in this space and I think that getting close to it and getting comfortable with it there's there's a lot that you have to kind of be okay with and your ego really like in this work your ego really has to leave uh, the room because at, at the end of the day if you get stuck and like Molly said for anybody in this work walking away at any time, um, you know, I, I definitely say replenish, you know, step away and recover and replenish what you need to. But at the end of the day, walking away is, is exactly what the system is set up to have us do. And so I would say, you know, there were people that were in the house that were, I don't know, maybe putting some things in food. Like there were people that were, <clears throat> there were people that were in the field and there were, you know, they were having church and that was considered uh, any type of fellowship, people learning to read. When you look at all the subversive ways um, that that you can be a part of this movement or that that don't have to be necessarily loud or present with your visibility necessarily, but like those those one-on-one -on -one conversations with your family, if your family has a certain belief system that is that is actually 
racist or set up in that way or that is actually anti-LGBTQ or anti-anything really, um, anti-Black, if you're looking at those situations and having those conversations or if you're spending time doing emotional labor in the spirit of you know, togetherness and education and advocacy and activism, um, and even getting involved in organi organizing, that's something that you have to be able to go to bed, spend your days knowing that you've done. And um, to me, that's like, everybody is necessary for that movement, right? So everybody in the house, everybody in the field, everybody that was doing everything that they were doing was necessary to get us to a place where we could find freedom. And, um, you know, without that, then it's it's really a struggle to say like to say oh this is the right way to do it or the one way to do it there's so many ways to get involved and actively participate voting all the all that kind of stuff is civic engagement it's so important for us to be involved and connected enough to it to know to know what we're what should we should do next and just a quick point of edification because i not all of my listeners i think are always well versed in certain things so when karen talks about being in the field or being in the house that is talking about the abolition and the fight against um, chattel slavery as we know it in the United States. We could fast forward, you know, some years after that and talk about how in the 1960s, um, when MLK and Ralph Abernathy and Ray Bayard Rustin and Fannie Lou Hamer and all those kind of folks were doing that kind of work, um, sometimes they would send people ahead to see what was going on in the city where they were going. Um, sometimes there would be people marching, sometimes there would be people at the house cooking food because when they got back from the marches, they needed to eat. Sometimes there were people who were going to pick folks up in the middle of the night or those sorts of things. So what Karen's saying, yes, it takes it takes all that. If we fast forward that to current day, and I'm probably stepping on the answers because this is what I do. But even if we fast forward that to current day, that's somebody that's sitting in a seat in an elected office maybe, you know, and folks are outside marching in the streets. There's somebody that's the go-between that's setting up meetings. Nobody ever knows that this person even exists and that they know somebody in elected office and know somebody at a grassroots level. Like it takes all kind. Any other kind of contributions to that? How do we jump past the, the shaming to make sure that folks can connect in the ways that are best and most helpful? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I tell people, right, like there's something that you're passionate about and there's a gift that you have and that's, you should operate in your gift. Um, but I think that, um, this is a, it's a life, like to be most effective, it is a lifestyle decision, right? And so it is not just, am I marching? Am I writing letters? It's when my plumbing breaks, do I call a black person, right? It is when I'm in a meeting and it's uncomfortable and an executive says something sideways, do I stand up and speak out? Right, when there's a police involved shooting, do I quietly tap the shoulder of my a black woman that I work with and say, if you need me to write any emails for you today, if you need me to do any work, like just I'm here, let me know. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But I have I have some extra space today. I can do a little bit of work. And so I think, you know, it doesn't have to be like the loud, active things all of the time, but it is a thought process that we that you need to incorporate into your life because we got a long way to go, right? And it's not gonna be the one letter, it's not gonna be the one phone call, it's not gonna be the one time you come do these things, but it's being thoughtful and keeping these things, keeping equity at the top of your mind all the time, right? Like <clears throat> when I walk into a space, right? Do I see Confederate flags hanging? Like what is the vibe that I get when I move through the world? 
and how can I make sure that I'm applying equity to all of those things? Um, so I think like Karen said, it doesn't have to be this thing or that thing operate in your gift. Um, but we gotta like, we gotta think about this stuff all the time because we have to deal with it all the time. Like it never goes away. And so we need help. And sorry, last plug for the Ohio Organizing Collaborative. You cannot do things without money. We do not need as much money, but MLK had people sending hundreds of thousands of dollars to bail them out of jail, right? Like you, you can't operate, right? Like if you want to people, pay people a living wage, you have to have money. And so your money, it talks. Yeah, I, um, I appreciate so much what Karen and Jasmine shared. I mean, I, I think for me, part of the way we overcome shame is getting really clear about um, what's at stake and if we're serious about winning. When you're talking about organizing and being in relationship with people, people are people. We are broken and messy and do things wrong and bring all of our pain and joys and hopes and dreams into every space we're in, whether we're allowed to show it or not, it is all over us. And you know, if you come from a tradition that believes that each person is made in an image of God, you actually have to, you have to mean that for, for every single person. And even when that's hard and a belief that someone can grow actually requires a level of responsibility that you're taking, if you're taking that step towards leadership. And that's really, I think, um, it's not, not everybody has the, um, the time, the patience or the to-do to, to take that role on. And those with more privilege should take it on more often to take responsibility for helping other people grow. Because if you're somebody who can blend into a room where people are going to say things in front of you that they might not say in other places, that's an opportunity for you to engage that's a, that's a door you can walk through that not everyone else can. And so, you know, the moment that we're in in this country, you know, I think a lot of people are, um, you know, the, the critical race theory conversations that's happening across the country. Like there, there is a explicit reaction to people of color in this country building power and an increasing, increasingly growing movement of, white people who are standing in solidarity, who understand that the system is not benefiting us. It doesn't help us have health care that's affordable or great schools for our kids or, you know, be able to work and earn a living and still actually have time to spend with our families, right? Like there is a lie that's being told that racism is at the heart of about how the system works and doesn't work for people. And if we're not willing to take responsibility to help people grow and get better and learn, and transform and take action. There, there is no path to, to building more power and for that movement to grow. So I think part of the, you know, moving from an activist who shows up and donates or shows up and, you know, marches one day, it's actually the next step is taking responsibility for bringing other people along. And that means being willing to invite them into growth and being willing to sit with them and help them grow and to grow yourself along that path. So a common theme to, we, we talked about relationships, but the focus 
it feels like of all of your work is humanity and being engaged and acknowledging the fact that humanity is fragile, it is complex, it is messy and broken, but it is worth the effort and the fight um, to either fight for or on behalf of someone who doesn't have a voice or a space in a room um, and to bring somebody along and to help them get to a different level and to often be self-reflective and you know, continue to figure out why you're doing what you're doing and how you can do it better, different, more effectively. Um, the organizations were mentioned. We talked about the Rest Collective, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, and Cohere. Do not worry, listeners. Those links will be dropped in the show notes for you to refer to so that you can learn more about the organizations where these folks are doing their, their, daily, their daily work and contributions. As we prepare to, to kind of close our conversation, there is a reason that I wanted you all on, right? I have seen some of your work. I have been fortunate enough to participate in small ways in the ways that I was able to lend my gifts and my time as, as Jasmine said, your passion and your gifts. Um, so as we close, there's, there's just two more things I want, I want to get at really quickly. One is how do we make these activist spaces more inclusive? Sometimes we see, um, and again, hearkening back to a previous episode, where we talked about kind of what happens when the, the oppressed become the oppressor. Um, and so sometimes in these activist spaces, we will see where I'm, I'm sitting on the, the call with three very powerful women, right? And there are times when in certain spaces, only male voices are elevated. And that's interesting, especially when you're looking into spaces where we're talking about groups of marginalized folks, how someone would then silence the voice of someone who is very similarly situated to them, but maybe has a different gender. Or, um, and Jasmine will appreciate this because this is something that I've seen um, in her life, whether she realized I was paying attention to it or not, when you're a certain age and you come into spaces and you're trying to do something and people think that because you're, you're not old enough to be concerned about what's happening or you haven't lived enough according to their standards. Or if people are saying, well, you don't, you know, you don't have enough education or whatever it is, because we all talked about our different degrees and that kind of thing, you don't have enough education. How do we make spaces for activism more inclusive so that the folks who are trying to do work and help people um, and these spaces where all this good stuff is supposed to be happening does not become another space where somebody feels like they are oppressed, burdened, further marginalized. So I've seen it, I've seen it in all sorts of ways, right? I've seen it with the younger generation telling me I'm not, you know, I'm not really about it, which is like, hilarious um so to me grace is a thing that we are lacking in the world writ large right and that applies all up and down left and right black to white white to black everywhere like every which way we just need to extend more grace to people um I feel strongly that a lot of that happens in faith organizations and institutions, but faith organizations and institutions need to get 
less homophobic and less racist. Um, you know, I tell people the one place you're going to come where people are going to love on you and genuinely ask you how you are, hug you, and then maybe feed you is a black church. Um, and that's so powerful, but we can't get people in those spaces if we're, if we're not being open and accepting. Um, and so I would just say all of this is just about having more grace in all directions with more people, right? Like I have to, I get frustrated sometimes with certain things and, and I have to step back and realize that like, not everyone is where I'm at. Not everyone knows the things that I know, not everyone's read the things that I've read and they've not had the same conversations that I've had and that's okay, but they're here now. And now that they're here, you know, I'm like a, I don't care where you start as long as you're willing to move forward. And people start in a lot of different places. Um, so for me, it is teaching and extending grace to people that is the most helpful in these situations. I know that's like not tangible, but um, that's my like philosophical um, opinion on these things. I'll speak to it as someone with a lot of intersections. Um... Ooh. So this question is definitely nuanced and complex, which people are, and we're in these spaces. Um, I have to regulate myself first, right? So if I'm in a space where, um, and this comes for, depending on your education, your class, your access to resources, um, your race, your gender, and what you have been exposed to in your life, um, you you may be operating in adaptive responses based on everything feeling like a threat because in your life, everything is a threat. And that's really, with the Rest Collective, we look at, uh, you know, what, how are we adapting? How are we showing up? And people are like, how do you have conversations all day about this? How do you, how do, you do this? And it definitely, to Jasmine's point, it is a mindset and a way of being like it's in my it's in my body it's in my blood and my mind at this moment so like there's no there's no real alternative because once you see things you can't unsee them but it's also like um i have to be regulated and in a space to have these conversations to and and also be able to say that i don't you know like if i don't on that day like maybe we can reschedule um and then there's that grace that comes in whether it's like uh you know Maybe I don't I don't have the the capacity or the spoons, if you will, to to educate you on LGBTQ terms, especially if you're coming at me condescendingly um, or like not really interested in it or making jokes about it. Like that's maybe that's not the space and the time to meet you because I'm I'm gonna be looking and discerning whether someone is really there to get information and really make a change or do something different, change behaviors, change mindsets or things like that, or if somebody is really just trying to play devil's advocate and be right or or do something like that, especially with church spaces. It can be, um, you know, like I said, I, I found at Summit, it was like, oh, come to this Reconciling Ministries Conference and do a drag show. And I was like, what? Um, so like, it was kind of like, how, to, how does that work where I'm not just tolerated or accepted? Because in a lot of spaces, um, Black spaces or, you know, church spaces, I'm tolerated because I'm not very threatening in general, that's what people say. Um, I try to put on the face that says, don't come talk to me, but that doesn't really happen. So I, you know, so I'm like, okay, so I'm in these spaces and I'm, I'm technically in the LGBTQ world, I'm mass presenting and my partner is femme. 
and powerful and assertive. And people will say, well, I could literally say the same thing and people won't hear what she has to say, but they'll hear what I have to say. And so when I look at like the way really just black women, especially black trans women, are, are treated in these in, in spaces all over the world. Like there's so much anti-blackness and that's a lot to unpack. Um, but I think what it means is if I have the voice or the platform where people are gonna listen to me for whatever reasons they find to listen to me and not a black woman or a black trans woman, or you know, as a black woman presenting person, I'm like comfortable or safe or the bro or the homie. I don't know what gets people to that point, but I think just being in that space and realizing that, and then also being like, yeah, well, Aaron just said that, or Jasmine just said that, or Molly just said that. And also making sure that I'm like clear and conscious about all of those things. Um, and I'm in a regulated space so that I'm not reactive, right? Or like uh, in, a, in a highly em emotional place or, or triggered or um, coming from like a responsive place in terms of like emotional activation. And so if I can, if I can regulate myself, then I can go into these spaces, hold space, and then obviously do the things I need to do to replenish and do whatever needs to be done for myself. But that's how I have to walk into those. Because we say in group agreements all the time, assume positive intent. Well, some people don't have positive intent, and that's the truth. And so it's like being prepared, uh, but also being in a space where you're open and like trying to listen. But I walk into rooms, no matter what room, honestly, and my 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 arm, my guard's up, my hypervigilance is aware. And I'm like, okay, am I just tolerated here? or am I actually affirmed here? And I, I'm aware of that. And that's generally from someone with multiple intersections. That's our experience walking into the room is we know whether we're tolerated, accepted, to what degree, if we're actually affirmed and wanted there and welcome there, we're gonna know that. And then that's probably gonna lead to more conversation and more community and more relationship. I'm gonna count myself fortunate to have met Karen in a social space where there were common friendly people around because I never got to see the ice grill. I was like, really? I didn't even know that. It was, I immediately met this smiling person. Uh, and we just like had don't a, make eye contact. You know what I mean? Like it some was days. A miracle. <laughs> Karen didn't have a choice though. Cause Karen was meeting some friends at a spot and I was sitting already next to these friends and <laughs> there you have it. But I, I mean, but that, that is an important thing to note though, is that as you encounter people, sometimes you have to acknowledge the fact that somebody's not being mean or standoffish, but they are calculating how they can show up in this space. And it, it's odd because we always tell people to be authentic and many people usually are, but depending on where they're coming into, they're wondering how authentic can I be? Is it dangerous for me to be my full self in this space? Is it exhausting for me? Like, am I gonna have to leave a body here because this is not a real comfortable or good space for me? Molly, anything to add to the uh, inclusive spaces? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is, I'll just say, I think there's so much more work to be done to make spaces for change more accessible to more people. I think it's one of our biggest barriers to really getting the, the people power that we need to transform this country. If it does not work for people with kids, how are we gonna make this work for everyone? If, it, if a meeting is not accessible to somebody who doesn't have an advanced degree, how are we gonna make this work, right? And sometimes I think we bend over backwards to try to be inclusive in one direction and then we exclude other people in another. And it's not even intentional. I think a lot of people are out here trying and trying to do what they can, but I really do think there's, there's so much room for growth and how we 
how we get clear about um, the fact that there should never be a room trying to solve a problem that does not include somebody that is impacted by that problem ever. That just should not be okay. And if you're looking around trying to address the situation and you don't have anybody impacted by that situation in the room, that has to be your number one goal and priority. And I think one of the things that I've learned um, to speak to, you know, I think another side of the coin that, that Karen shared is, you know, as a white woman, when I walk into a room, I have to understand that there are people scanning me and waiting and assessing who I might be, what might be safe to say around me or near me. And I have to be okay with the fact that until I'm in relationship with somebody, I represent a, a real threat that could be perceived and if I, if I want to take that personal, if I want to sense that and, and try to react to it or, or prove something otherwise, it, it can actually be, I think, very unproductive. And so for me to be able to understand that um, until I'm in relationship with somebody, I am all of those things <laughs> until somebody else decides otherwise, it's not actually up to me to decide if I'm a safe person. And me saying this is a safe space doesn't do that. That is actually up to other people, just like, you know, in other situations around class or gender, that might be the case for me. So I think, you know, um, there's a lot of room for growth for people with privilege to understand that and to create more space for people in every context you're in. So I, I think there's lots of room for growth and I think we can all, we can all do better. I think that's dead on, right? Like you, like we're, we are surviving and if we don't know you, right, like we have to protect ourselves and we're, we're very willing to be loving and open, but like the initial assessment has to be, I don't know you, I need to make sure that you're safe. And it's not personal, right? It is just, um, it's just survival. Um, I think the cat has something to say also, <laughs> but I will say, you know, like, um, meetings don't have to have, have to happen in library rooms. And, you know, sometimes just by holding a meeting, you are actually excluding people. Like there are people who are never going to come to a meeting, but you can take what you learned and the conversations that you have, and you can have those on the front of a porch with some family, right? Like I have the most random conversations and the most random places. You wanna get to know a side of town, you go to the bar, right? Like that's where you go, you meet all kinds of people. Um, I mean, I've had conversations in front of corner stores or in front of Chipotle or, you know, like the meeting doesn't always have to be formal, doesn't always have to have an agenda and that doesn't always have to be eight to 15 people there. You know what I'm saying? You can have a meeting with three people playing spades on somebody's front porch. So, of course, I would hate for this conversation to end, but I always like to give my listeners a, a, an opportunity to learn more. So this is what I, I call my show, like an educational space. This is a primer. This is for folks to understand what advocacy and activism looks like. And for those of you who are listening, it looks like more than what you see on the news, right? Um, you haven't heard anybody screaming. You, <laughs> you, you have heard people talk about connecting with people, and that is truly what advocacy and activism is about. It is about connecting with people and making change that is making this world a better place for anybody that's in here and anybody that shows up to live. I am so grateful 
um, for Karen and Molly and Jasmine and Karen's cat that came to the Zoom meeting with us. I am so grateful for you all because I do not take it lightly that you all are taking time of your out of your day um, when you could be either busy working on the next thing or resting or whatever the combination of things may be to sit with me and have a conversation to share openly about your passion and your work and your life and your rest. I am incredibly grateful because I am glad that I have created a space where folks can come and talk and in a way teach other people who will be listening to this while they're on their way to work or doing their workout or on their walk. Um, I am hopeful that the people who have listened to what you have shared today will consider how they show up in community, what their role is in making our world a better place, and then leaning into that thing truthfully and honestly. So I wanna say I appreciate y'all. I thank you so much. Listeners, I hope you learned something that you can take forward and stay tuned in for one last thing coming up in our next segment. And now it's time for one last thing. I'm starting to believe that this portion of the show is misnamed just a little bit because I tend to share more than one thing in this final segment. However, when I go on my journey to find inspirational words and action items for you all, it ends up being more than one thing because there's just so many great things out there. So... Today, I'm leaving you with three quotes from three very powerful people. Uh, The first is Anne Frank, who was a Jewish teenager whose family hid from the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Anne wrote, how wonderful it is that nobody needs to wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Another quote that I found very interesting is from a gentleman who, had he been alive uh, today, would be turning 103 years old this month, and that's Nelson Mandela, uh, former leader of South Africa, um, activist and fighter against apartheid, and there was an occasion where he was at the the 90th birthday celebration of one of his co-laborers in the fight against apartheid, uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu. And so on that day of great celebration, Nelson Mandela said, what counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived. It is the difference we have made to the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life we lead. And finally, a quote from one of my favorites, who was an activist in the South in the 1960s as a part of the civil rights movement and often on the forefront of the fight for voting rights, Fannie Lou Hamer, who very simply said in the most direct and straightforward Fannie Lou way, nobody's free until everybody's free. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Inscribing Inclusion. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation and the things that you learned today, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.